Hello and welcome to Career Corner, where it's my belief that you are the CEO of your career. We all want the secrets to career success and fulfillment, but careers can be difficult to navigate and frankly filled with bad advice. My name is Jonathan Mars and I am the host of Career Corner. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing interesting people at different stages of their careers in a variety of industries so you can learn from their experiences and gain tangible insights to apply to your own career. Real people like you and me with authentic advice. While this is my first Career Corner podcast, Career Corner is actually a live event series I hosted for three plus years at a company called AppNexus, which became an employee favorite. So I've been doing this a while and I'm excited to bring it to a much larger platform and hope you enjoy it. Feel free to reach out to me with feedback at, on Twitter at Jonathan Mars. Up first is my good friend, Ben Cohen, who is the head of sales excellence and marketing at Hella and based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. What's fascinating about Ben's career is he made a huge career pivot eight years ago since he used to manage photo production operations for NBC Universal, then started out his, on his own with his own photography company where he would provide marketing assets for companies such as HBO, Sony, Netflix, and many more. So the fact that he's now in a sales enablement and marketing function is really cool. And I look forward to you hearing about that pivot. Ben will walk us through the ups and downs of his career where we'll discuss taking advantage of opportunities when you're overwhelmed, the importance of asking for what you want, as well as how to connect with your colleagues. Also, if you have a minute, please check out Ben's Real Men Wear Pink campaign in conjunction with the American Cancer Society. I'll include a link in the show notes for that. It's a great cause. And finally, on an important note on the intro music, I picked this because it reminded me of the movie Boiler Room, so shout out to any JT Marlin fans. Without further ado, please enjoy the first episode of Career Corner with Ben Cohen, Head of Sales Excellence and Marketing at Hella. Ben Cohen, welcome to Career Corner, man. How are you? I'm doing well, Jonathan Mars. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. I've been doing this for a long time at my company, and now we're taking it taking it mainstream. So if this thing takes off, man, it started right here with you. So you'll be a big big credit for that. So thank you. Yeah, that's usually how things go in my life. When um, when things go well, I take all the credit. <laughs> it's great leadership style. We'll we'll touch on that a little bit. Um, so, so Ben, you know, we're talking a few days uh, after Labor Day, and it's you know we're still in the throes of COVID. But I thought you and I have known each other for quite a long time, and I thought maybe we could start there. You know, we've we've sort of interacted in uh, in some career stuff uh, the last couple of years, but really we. We worked a lot together um, back in the day. Do you want to sort of kind of tee up your your NBC days, and and I can also sort of give my my perspective on the other side of what you were doing there. Sure. So um, I actually started my let's say real career at NBC Universal 
uh, in the photography department, which is a, a place that most people don't even know it exists unless you're working in it or you need something from it. Um, so at the time, I was producing uh, still photography for about 35 different TV shows at once across all NBC Universal, also sports and news. And then we had a big shakeup in the office. Um, there were some layoffs and all of a sudden, my boss came down to my door and said, hey, um, you're now in charge of this photo licensing division where we basically let everybody go from. And you have until Monday morning to tell the CFO of NBC how much money we're going to make this fiscal year. And I had to learn the entire business in a weekend. I actually slept in the office and I um, gave a projection of how much we were going to make which was about a quarter of what the previous person had um, said that they were going to make. But mine was based more on reality, and the CFO believed me, and we just went from there. And then, um, you know, you and I built up our relationship because we were distributing photography through AP at the time, and we just were trying to find ways to, you know, make the relationship better, not just, hey, here's a dump of photos, you guys go sell them and hopefully sell them, but how do we work together to actually make this a partnership versus just a buy-sell relationship. And through that, you know, just daily and weekly phone calls, I think you and I got to know each other pretty well, found other commonalities besides work, uh, one of them definitely being Irish pubs in New York. And uh, we kind of went from there. Well, those Irish pubs in New York, that's true. I totally forgot about that. Nothing better than some mozzarella sticks on uh, 34th street then how how old like how old were you at that time and if was nbc your first formal gig out of college i was in my 20s let's see so i was in my early to mid 20s at that point and uh yeah i did my internship while i was in college uh, my last internship at nbc and then basically got hired on right afterwards and, and stayed there. So that was my real first out-of-college gig. And then I had been at NBC for a few years, uh, maybe three before they had given me that job. So I was really just in my mid-20s. And just, just so the audience knows, you know, NBC Universal at that time, I mean, you're talking about huge shows, right? The Today Show, Saturday Night Live, Meet the Press, Seinfeld, Friends. I mean, you, you, that was a treasure trove of content. And just to give a little more perspective, who, who were typically clients of, of that kind of content? So the content uh, that we were distributing was really for mostly the newspapers, magazines, um, websites that were talking about uh, celebrities or TV shows, and they would license the photography uh, to be able to run a picture, you know, with things like that. We also did other big licensing deals, you know, for merchandising or for someone's uh, book if it was authorized, and um, and really things like that. So it's really uh, wherever you could put still photography is who our client was. And then. I was at the Associated Press, uh, like you said, working in AP Images, and at that time, AP was the exclusive distributor. And, and for us, it was really great to have such a premium 
collection to, to work with. And so if you think about the Associated Press as one of the world's largest news agencies, I don't, I don't know if that's still the case, but they have a huge global footprint. And so what was nice for us is we were able to have our own photographers, our own stringers sort of out shooting news and things like that. And then with NBC as sort of one of these anchor partners, uh, build out a collection of partner content, of third-party content that people could come for AP stuff, but then you could get a photo from the NFL or NBC or Kyoto News in Japan or things like that. And I, it was really cool. I mean, I didn't know photos really well, but there's a, a bunch of metadata in each photo and, and things like that. How, going back to that, that weekend where you got the job, I mean, that sounds like an extremely overwhelming experience. And I feel like you've had a, like a few of those situations in your career where it's just like, boom, here's this scenario that sounds impossible, figure it out. But what were some of the first things you did that weekend to get your arms around everything? Uh, so the first thing I did was um, have a stiff drink and uh, tell myself I could do it. <laughs> and, um, but really, you know, everyone talks about this, uh, you know, this saying, fake it till you make it. And, and to me, that really doesn't give it justice unless you really are just a con artist. To me, it's just saying yes to the opportunity. Um, so I could have said no. I don't know what that would have meant if my job would still been safe if I had said no. But I said yes because, you know, I'm a fairly smart person. I'm not, you know, the brightest person, but I'm fairly smart. And, uh, you know, I know how to do things and I know how to ask the right questions and, you know, problem solve. And it was like, okay, I got a challenge in front of me. It's a new challenge. Let's just go for it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to develop some skills and, you know, maybe after a year of running this, they say, hey, we need to bring in someone who's better at doing this and has done it for longer. Yeah, okay, I wouldn't blame you either. Um, but it was just saying yes to it, really, and giving yourself the opportunity to really shine. And, you know, over that weekend, it was just, let's get down to work. You have 48 hours to learn an entire business and then walk into the CFO of NBC and tell him what you think of that business. Mm -hmm. so, so I just got down to work. I, I literally was pulling every piece of paper out of this, uh, the old person's desk, going through their computer, going through their emails, everything I could digest. And then I made the best possible projection that I could at the time. Uh, today, could I probably make a better projection? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter. My projection ended up being close enough that it was okay. And I, I was able to save that department really from going under because it wasn't only, we weren't only working with the photos that were coming in from the Today Show and, you know, the TV shows we had on the air. The cool thing was we had the photos dating back to the radio days of NBC. So we had the entire archive that we were still mining and putting up that content and reintroducing people to all that content too. So there was a lot riding on it, not only people's jobs, but you know, the legacy of NBC uh, weighed heavy on me too. Right, right, totally. So two questions. One is how, how did you get in to photography? 
slash, you know, how did you end up at NBC? And you were in LA at the time. I was in New York at the time, but I'd love to hear, you know, you're an East coast guy. So how did you end up moving to LA? And then like for me on photography, it was, I just had no idea what I was doing early in my career. And that's sort of how I ended up doing that and then learned a bunch of things. But I think with you, it was a little more intentional, right? Uh, Yes and no, I'd say. Um, So like you said, I grew up in Jersey, went to school in Boston uh, and then was going to film school, studying film, worked on a student film in California. The weather was beautiful. You know, it was coming time towards my uh, senior year and I could do my last uh, semester either in California or I could just stay in Boston, finish up, and then probably end up working in New York or Boston. And when I weighed things out, I said, I don't really want to live at home anymore. You know, I've done the New York thing. I've done the Jersey thing. I want to go to California. So I was looking for internships and it turned out that um, someone who used to work for my dad named Melissa Dupont's she uh, was the director of photography at NBC and she, my dad and her talked like maybe once a year and he said, Oh yeah, my son's looking for internships. And she said, well, have him call me. And I called her and was just hoping just to have a a connection to somebody out in LA, not really looking for an internship at NBC because I didn't know what the director of photography even meant. And we ended up just talking for two hours on the phone. And at the end of that conversation, she said, okay, great. So you're going to be my intern. And I said, I didn't even know you were offering an internship. She said, well, I'm not, but I'll figure it out a way. You're going to be my intern. When do you move out here? I told her the date and she said, okay, but we have this big thing in New York. Uh, Before that, you know, can you just drive down and meet us all? And then, you know, by the time you get to LA, we'll already know you. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of how I stumbled uh, into the photography department. Uh, I wanted to be a director of photography, but in a different sense, being you know the person behind the camera shooting movies and TV shows. But when I you know took this opportunity, I learned about the photography department. I loved my own still photography and looking at still photography and you know capturing just a single frame in the moment and telling a story that way too. And became this really interesting uh, place that, like I said, you don't know exists until you actually need it or you work there. What was the relationship between your, your dad and the director of photography? Was your dad in the industry or did, did you just know this person? My dad w- uh, was in advertising for years and she used to work uh, underneath him. So he was probably at the time he was working with her. He was probably a vice president, a creative director, and she was probably just a creative director at the time and at you know some point someone gets a new job and you know you part ways and you know all all good because they still were close and you know they would just catch up once a year and just happened to work out that their once a year chat was around the time I was looking for internships and I wasn't even trying to get an internship from her but after talking we just hit it off so well that she said you're my intern and that was that pretty much you so you went to Emerson in in Boston. Why did you decide to go there? Was it did they have a good film school program or something else? Um, so they did have a decent film program. I didn't want to do New York 
because I grew up right outside New York and I also didn't want to be that close to my parents where there could just be a pop in, you know, didn't want that because they would have been prone to do that for sure. Uh, so I felt like Boston was cl- close enough without being too close. Uh, Boston is just an awesome city. Uh, it's kind of really small, but fun, uh, good people. I really liked the idea of a walking campus. So there wasn't really a campus. It's just a couple buildings, you know, throughout the city that are sort of close to each other. Um, but I really just felt like when I went to visit it, that the people there at the time, the school has changed very much since, but at the time, these were my people. Um, we were all kind of nerdy. We were all kind of uh, weirdos, uh, but in our own interesting way. And that was cool to me. And, you know, they sold T-shirts in the gift shop that said Emerson football undefeated since 1880. It's because we've never had a football team. In fact, when I went to Emerson, uh, we were rated the number one dodgeball target of uh, every school in the U.S. And, you know, maybe I wasn't a dodgeball target, but, uh, you know, I was definitely a nerd. And that was okay. I just fit in. And that's why I ended up at Emerson. Got it. My school also did not have a football team and we had those undefeated t-shirts as well. So it's good to know someone else had that going for them. Specifically, which town did you grow up in in Jersey? A little town uh, called Old Tapan. So uh, about 15 minutes from the Tappan Zee Bridge. And yes, you say Old Tapan different than you say the Tappan Zee Bridge. What were you telling me like a few weeks ago, you were talking to somebody from Jersey and you were talking about these two kinds of sodas and I hadn't heard of either of them. And I've lived in Jersey, Hoboken. Do you remember uh, that or am I making that up? No, not soda. Um, so Jersey has a special pork meat product uh, called pork roll. Uh, and you would say pork roll if you're from Southern Jersey and you would say Taylor ham if you're from Northern Jersey. And it is a highly contested uh, debate which one is the real one. Uh, Taylor ham is more like uh, you would call a tissue a Kleenex because it was the the name brands. But th- I didn't know that. This is from like a hundred years ago. But th- in Northern Jersey, you call it Taylor ham. Okay, fun facts all around. Yeah, I had never heard of that, and I've spent considerable time in Jersey. If you never so, had a real breakfast sandwich in Jersey, you're truly missing out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I lived in Hoboken and Weehawken and spent time at the Jersey Shore. I just, I guess not. Maybe I'll have to go back. When, Ben, when did you know that you were interested in photography? How old were you? I was probably, you know, maybe around 10, you know, 8, 9, 10, somewhere around that age. Uh, my dad had a, kind of a crappy Nikon laying around, and I would always pick it up and uh, try and take pictures with it, even without filming it. I think part of that was I always wanted to know how things work. Um, I would, you know, I was the kid who took apart the VCR player and could sort of put it back together, but not entirely put it back together. And uh, a camera was kind of the same kind of deal, but I could take apart the lens, you know, take it off the body. I could look in, I could see how the shutter was moving. And then I could kind of, in my mind, figure out what the picture was. And then so I just carried around even pretending to take pictures without film, but looking at the world through a lens. 
and that that's probably where it, it started i but it probably didn't click uh no puns intended uh for me that i wanted to be in photography and take pictures more until uh, high school when i started taking uh, some film classes and doing things like that that's interesting my wife is as you know is a food blogger and the one thing i've learned is that there's different types of photography uh, which can require different equipment and different skill sets so my wife shoots food but she's not maybe going to be able to do like portraits or weddings or something i mean what were what were you initially interested in and, and for someone listening that maybe doesn't have any experience with photography could you give us like a two-minute crash course sure so uh, <laughs> i'll try on a podcast uh, so my uh, my initial uh you know interest in photography was just shooting what i saw and no manipulation just it is what it is this is the world but this is my view and i think i've always been that kind of person uh, that has a strong worldview and I will always tell you what it is. So I think that's why that style of photography always uh, struck with me. So there was that, but then also, then I got into more portraiture and taking photos of people because I'm really interested in people. And I think you can tell the story of someone really interesting with lighting and framing and things like that. Now, food photography, I actually um, am terrible at. I love food. I love food photography, but I don't have the patience uh, for food photography because you really have to spend so much time crafting it so perfectly because if one drop of water or something is out of place, it's, it's just messy and it doesn't look right. Whereas uh, when I do that with people or just the world around me, it's okay because the world is messy. And for me, that's more fun. Um, so on T, it kind of worked well, you know, working at NBC and doing that on TV sets and then moving into my own career of shooting on TV sets because I was shooting what was in front of me, although maybe somebody else was lighting it and uh, there were other cameras there. I was finding my own way to tell that same story because I had to tell the story with a single frame versus having to uh, have it with, you know, moving picture or you know, just taking the same exact frame that the other cameras on set were getting. Got it. Thank you. What? How was your childhood? Did you have any mentors or influential people in your life at that point that maybe you still think of to this day? Uh, so my childhood, probably my biggest mentor would probably be uh, my grandfather. Uh, because every at least once a year, my brother and I would go down and visit them in Florida. And he uh, worked at a kitchen and bath store uh, that he uh, started. And then also he had a vending route where he would, you know, fill up soda machines and candy machines. And, you know, when we went down there to visit him, that was part of the visit was going to work and, you know, meeting all these people that he meets and, you know, seeing him selling a can of soda for 50 cents, even though he could easily get a dollar for it, but he was just doing it to really just to break even and, you know, have the business just pay for their expenses and their health insurance and things like that. And so it wasn't really a mentorship in, you know, what I do now, but it was a mentorship 
in learning how to deal with people. Um, my favorite story that I love to tell about, you know, if you can get along with people, not even get along, if you can read people, if you can interact with people, whether you want to or not, it can really get you anywhere. And by anywhere, I mean, him and I got into a um, secure government building. So it was a government contractor that was making um, some kind of computer chip that was used in uh, guided missiles. And he had a, a vending machine in their break room. And you know we pulled up and we had the hand truck full of snacks and sodas and whatnot. And we just walk right up to the front desk and walk right right by without doing any of the security checks. And someone said, hey, Mickey, how's it going? He said, oh, good, this is my grandson. Oh, hey, Ben, how's it going? And you know that, that was that. We walked right into the secure government building and no one cared that uh, he was there because, you know, he was just that kind of person. And it's, you know, I was probably like 12 years old or something. They didn't care either. And, you know, that, that really taught me about how if you connect with people, um, you really go so much further. Yeah, I want to come back to that a little later. So, okay, so let's go back. You're in L.A. You graduated from Emerson. You're in L.A. You're at NBC. You just got handed a boatload of responsibility. What what happens next? Like, walk us through sort of what you had to do in the next you know months or years. Um, and you eventually became a bit of a one-man band. But talk to us about, so you walk out of that meeting with the CFO. What, what happens next? Uh, so my boss takes me for lunch and says, I can't believe you told him that. And, um, and I said, well, it was the truth. And I'm, you know, this is what I, I believe. And this is what we can actually do. And we're, we're going to do it. And he said, well, I hope you do it because that number you just gave him, uh, basically, if you don't hit that, um, people lose their jobs. And I said, well, okay, okay well, we're going to do it. So I'm not, I'm not worried. We're just going to get to work. And so then we came back to the office and, you know, it was time to get to work and we had to figure out, okay, where do we sit now? Um, is, are we following the right strategy? You know, what's going on? I think at that time we were still kind of connected to a whole bunch of different agencies. We weren't really uh, centralized yet. So that was one part of the strategy. The other part of the strategy was what do we want to mine out of the archive? Are we doing any research on do people like portrait or landscape, you know, style photos? Do they want singles? Do they want two shots? What's actually being sold? So we did all this research on uh, things like that. We had to work internally with the company to rebuild uh, our ERP. Um, so because we were such a small, small division comparatively to everything else at MPC, uh, they kind of just handed us uh, an SAP system that somebody else was using and said, you're just going to use that. But then I got to know the SAP people and we got to develop a, a system that actually worked for how our business worked. And then um, so we got to roll out, you know, the things like that. And this was only really a part of my job. I was still a photo producer uh, producing, you know, huge TV shows, launching shows like The Voice. Uh, I was part of a two-man team uh, who got to go to the photo team, who got to go to the Olympics, which was the first time NBC had sent 
their own photographers to the Olympics in about 20 or 30 years. Um, so there was still a lot of other things going on, meanwhile, being responsible for this business. But you just add it on, you just get it done. You, you train people, you, you know, let them uh, do their work so that way you can go do your work. And it just blossomed from there. And for the first time ever, that business was profitable. And then they kind of just trusted us to go do our thing. So if I'm characterizing this incorrectly, let me know. But it sounds like simplistically, there's sort of uh, two big buckets to the MVC business. There's sort of the archives and essentially sounds like you're saying like being data driven about it, figuring out what to scan and, 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 and maybe you can talk a little bit more about that um, in terms of like actually turning photos uh, into digital ones that you could sell. And then there's sort of the live or more recent content component. Is that accurate, generally accurate or am I off the mark? No, it's totally right. So we had the photos that were coming in every day, whether they were from a TV show, from the news, uh, from sports, whatever it may be. And then we had our archive, which went back to the radio days, which they're probably still mining to this day because it had millions of photos in it. Um, at that time, uh, you know, data-driven wasn't a nice buzzword, but we were really what we did was we just looked through every sales sheet and we looked what sold and we, we made it, you know, a tick box and an Excel. That's, this is how I first did it. And, uh, and just had to figure out what's working, what's not working. And then said, okay, let's focus on these things. Uh, Also, we've put a budget towards things. The team that was doing all this work didn't even, you know, know, the budget they just kept working and i said well no you got to own this like you have x amount of money to spend on retouching x amount of money to spend on scanning x amount of money to spend on our warehousing things like this and you know all these people were uh, older than me but they just listened because it, it all made sense it was simplistic but it made sense and it worked and then they were able to make it even better once they kind of owned it after a few months yeah. How, so on that second category, you, you would shoot the Academy Awards and stuff like that, right? Uh, so we weren't the Academy Awards. We, awesome. uh, we would do the Emmys on a rotating basis when we were hosting it. Uh, and we had the Golden Globes at NBC. Those were kind of our big ones. You can tell my uh, Hollywood knowledge is virtually zero at this yeah, point. No, no worries. As much as I love watching Hollywood people celebrate themselves, it's it's not really uh, something that gets me going at this point. But let's take the the Golden Globes. I mean, huge event. Could could you sort of walk like you're at the event, right? Like, can you sort of give us like a back behind the curtain view of what that operation looks like? You know, from showing up to you know, seeing a photo on a website or a magazine. For sure. So it actually all starts months and months in advance, uh, negotiating how many photographers we can have, where the photographers can be, how many credentials they're going to give us, uh, all, all how many people in the back room we could have who are editing photos, what kind of internet they're going to give us, all these sorts of things uh, get negotiated beforehand. 
Then on the day of the show, you have photographers uh, on the red carpet uh, where all the other photographers are screaming. But then we also have photographers who are, have other credentials who are allowed to actually walk on the red carpet. Um, who are not only shooting celebrities, they're shooting you know, executives who are sh- showing up, uh, things like that. Then you have people who are with them to you know, hopefully point out the people that you want photographs of. And then they're um, shooting to a card. And then that person would run the card back to the team of people who are in the back room who are editing all the photos, applying metadata, and then pushing the photos out uh, through the service which, wherever we were pushing them to our own site or even uh, you know, to the AP directly. Got it. And then so, it migrates into the sorry, it migrates into the show and kind of the same deal. Uh, you know, as technology got better, then we were able to put internet drops where photographers were, and they could just plug in and it would zap the photos right to the editing team, and it was much more efficient that way. Yeah, thank you for that. So, I mean, this sounds like a massive responsibility. And I know you're a hard worker, so that's obviously a component. But how did you, you're, you know, you're, you're high capacity, and I'm not just pandering here, like you're, you know, you're a high capacity person. But how did you handle this responsibility and workload? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I know because I, I only worked with you on part of your job, and that part was huge. So how did you tactically sort of get stuff done? Yeah, I think, um, for me personally, I live by my calendar. Uh, so my calendar not only has meetings on it, but it has reminders uh, for me. It has thing, kind of my to-do list, uh, things like that. And that's really how I stay organized through everything. Um, but to be honest, the job is so huge. You're not doing it by yourself. And anyone who tells you, you know, they did it all on their own is full of shit. Really, uh, you have to rely on your team. You have to be with good people. You have to train them well. You all have to trust each other. Uh, these are the things that get you through those those major moments. It's not anything uh, you know spectacular that I did or anything like that. I just make sure I'm organized. I make sure we know what we're going to do, that everybody knows what we're going to do, and then we all go execute together. And you can really rely on uh, everybody executing together to get what you need. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you. So how, you know, you're, how long were you at NBC again? I was at NBC for about seven years. And, and so you're, you, you've gotten this massive responsibility you're at this hugely well-known brand and you're in photography are things and so i think one could maybe look at your situation and go this guy's got it made he's so happy um is that how it was like how were things on the back end for you i wouldn't say i was so happy Uh, i mean there was a lot of long nights there was a lot of uh hard work. There was a lot of time not spent with friends in my early 20s. Uh, For instance, I was the photo producer for Saturday Night Live, which meant that for 22 Saturdays out of the year, I was sitting at home uh, waiting for the photos to get uploaded so I could edit everything, metadata them, push them out to press, push them up to our sites, to uh, to you, 
uh, and things like that. And there were a lot of uh, early um, sacrifices that were made and it, it took a toll after a while. And uh, at a certain point, it was like, okay, are the sacrifices worth it? And am I going to go anywhere else? And I, I looked around and there was really nowhere for me to go. The people above me weren't giving up those jobs anytime soon. Uh, people who end up in the photography department stay there for a very long time. And, you know, I felt like I was in my prime and it was time to find my next challenge, really. I had done so much. Uh, it was like, okay, what else? Yeah. And do you, I mean, do you have any interesting or crazy stories just with being on the red carpet or meeting celebrities or just like something really cool from the Olympics or something that is worth sharing? Like, I know you've had a lot of random, interesting experiences, but could you share one with the audience? I think one of the best from the Olympics would be uh, we had to take Bob Costas's uh, new headshot, and uh, you know we saw him along around the compound. We were shooting uh, the show, you know, when he was interviewing people and things like that, and they were running behind schedule, and they were running behind schedule, and then the photographer who I was with, um, he looked at his watch and said, "I gotta go. The you know USA team is in their hockey." And I got to go. I got to go. I'm supposed to go shoot that match. And I was like, yeah, you got to go. And so he left and I had the camera and, uh, you know, I had been taking pictures while I was there anyway, um, at different events. I was, you know, curling and the less, lesser known things, but probably more fun. I was taking behind the scenes photos of the athletes as they would come in before they were getting interviewed and some of their interviews and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden they went to commercial break and said, okay, Ben, you have two minutes and 30 seconds. And Bob looked right at me and he said, hey, I only have one pose. And I said, well, you do it so well. Let's just do that. And we took pictures and they're counting me down second by second. And I said, okay, I'm good. I got it. And I just packed up my stuff, walked out. And 10 seconds later, they're back on the air and he's doing his thing like nothing had ever happened. And then uh, the... Later that day, I saw him in the hallway and he wanted to see the photos and he was like, Ben, this is so awesome. Oh, Ben, you got to show this person. Ben, you got to show this person. And it was it was fun for me because it was like I was his best friend for the day. Um, and it was a, really a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. Do, do people generally want to see the photos? Um, some do, some don't. Uh, some people just want their publicist to see it and approve it for them and then complain about it later. Um, some people are really interested about it and they get excited and, oh, that's so cool. Oh, I don't look good there. And, you know, and, and, so, and when you get people like that, it's fair criticism. It's not just vanity. Um, so it really depends on the person, to be honest. So you're at this inflection point at NBC. And I mean, I know where you're sitting right now and I know what you're doing right now. And it is in a lot of ways, very different from what you were doing then. So what, what happened next? So you're at this point with NBC, you've been there for seven years. You leave, why, where do you go? What are, what are, you, what are you thinking at this, at this point of taking the next step? So over a few months, I started building my own photography portfolio. And I said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be one of these big name photographers that you hire. And I'm going to work my name up 
you know, obviously to becoming a big name, but I'm going to be one of those guys. And everybody was supportive. Uh, they got it. And they, you know, as I kept showing them things, they would critique it. And then I would shoot more and they said, you're getting better. Just keep going. And it was really a positive atmosphere as I was doing all my work. And then I gave my notice and on my second to last day, you know, I showed up to work a little late because what did I care? I wasn't going to get fired. It's not like I was that late. I was probably like 15 minutes late. But for me, that's like three hours. And everybody's crying when I get to the office. And I knew they weren't crying for me. And they just laid off a ton of people. And it was, you know, senior vice president, uh, directors, you know, all different levels of people had been laid off. And I was like, wow, I feel for you guys, but this is also my second to last day. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And then on my drive home, uh, the head of publicity called and said, would you stay longer? And I said, what do you mean would I stay longer? You just let all these people go. Just keep them. And he said, no, those people are gone. Will you stay to help us get through pilot season for three more months? And, you know, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she was coming out to visit to celebrate me quitting and, you know, doing my own thing. And I said, I I don't know, I need to call you back. And then I called him back the next morning. He gave me his personal cell phone number. I called him at 7 a.m. And I said, okay, I'm in, but you're going to pay me this much extra for these three months. You're going to let me do a photo shoot to prove to you that you want to hire me. And you're going to give me every pilot that's out of town because I'm going to travel on your dime while I'm here at least. And he, and he said, okay, okay, okay. And I said, one more thing. I need Friday off because, you know, my girlfriend's coming into town and to celebrate. And he said, Friday off? You, why don't you have today off? And I said, what do you mean have today off? I'm already in the office. Do you know how much work I have to do over the next three months? And he was just like, okay, and hung up. And that was that. So I stayed for three more months. And then uh, on my last day, I left my phone and my badge on my desk and, uh, you know, we went out to lunch and I just parted my own way and started my photography career. So I just want to make sure I understand. So you started Ben Cohen Photography. They brought you on as a contractor basically to shoot stuff or are you sort of doing the two things simultaneously or you, you haven't really gotten the photography company going yet so i had started the photography company um but i had no clients and then i had submitted my portfolio for this you know big time portfolio review and they came back and they absolutely trashed me and told me how awful i am and how i'm never going to get a job in photography and blah 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 and i was i was devastated and literally 15 minutes later a producer from Sunday Night Football called me and said, hey, can you make your way up to San Francisco and shoot all the portraits um, of the 49ers? And uh, yeah, yeah, of course, uh, I'll do it. I'll figure it out. Sure. And two days later, I was shooting the 49ers. So uh, and so actually, my old department wasn't the ones who hired me first. It was a connection I had made through the Sunday night football team and working with them and showing them uh, what I could do and, you know, how hard I produced things for them. And they were the first ones to actually hire me. Got it. And that sort of that conversation where you laid down the terms uh, of sort of working with them, you know, through pilot season, 
I mean, most people aren't comfortable doing that. Was it just the situation where you knew you had all the leverage or is that generally how, how you, I don't want to say operate, but are very clear with what you're looking for in your career? Was that sort of a one-off or is there, is there sort of a theme of that throughout your career? I would say I wish I was that brave all the time, but I knew I had 100% of the leverage and I had zero because literally I was walking away anyway. So I figured, mm-hmm. let's just put, um, put it all out there and see what sticks and see what happens. I figured I, I have four demands. If they agree to two of them, okay, I'm up. Um, but at other times in my career, uh, you know, I'm pretty well known for telling it like it is and telling people exactly how I feel. Um, I've made that promise to every boss I ever had is you will, you will know how I feel and, you know, we'll either get by it or we won't. Um, but I don't think I'm as brave as I was that day. Um, sometimes when I'm uh, trying to advocate for myself. Is it something you've gotten better at in sort of less extreme circumstances or is it something you, you still struggle with? I've gotten better, but it's still something uh, that I struggle with. And, you know, it's a personal development thing to really speak up and say what you deserve. And sometimes it's hard and it's nerve wracking. And quitting is just as nerve wracking sometimes, because especially when you've been with people for so many years, you kind of grown up together. uh, It's the same thing as nerve wracking. So, um, but it is a development thing for me that I am a little bit more cognizant now of and that I try and be a little bit more forthright about. Got it. So you, you, you get through pilot season. I want to get to Hella in a couple minutes and sort of what you're doing now, but you know, how was that pilot season? Is there sort of a bridge that we should dive into between NBC and, and what you're doing now? I mean, everything I did then is relevant now, although it doesn't look like it on paper. And the, the funny thing is I was just hiring for my team you know, only a few months ago, and one of the people who interviewed with me, who I actually did hire, during the interview when I asked if she had any questions, she said, yeah, how the hell do you have this job? How are you qualified for this? And I explained it. Everything is transferable skill. You don't have to have worked in the same industry forever. You don't have to have the same title forever. Um, but if you can carry on that skill and you you make it better and you can grow, you can move to different jobs. It's fine. So walk us through how you did that. Because I agree with you completely, but... You know, I, I went like, you know, similar deal, right? I went from traditional media to startup tech. And, you know, if I could do it, anyone can do it. But how being able to articulate those transferable skills, I think, is a bit of a, a skill. Some sort of like advocating for yourself, whether it's, you know, through promotions or compensation. I also think people can be uncomfortable sort of like, making people see that, hey, this is what I did before on paper. It looks very different, but here's why it's relevant and here's why it's going to create value for your company. So can we sort of start to unpack that transition and sort of how you were able to like 
take advantage of the things you would learn and then, and then communicate to future companies why it would, would work. And I, I imagine there is some element of like, you had to sell this to get in the door. And then once you got in the door, you, you sort of like the next skip and jump maybe got easier. Yeah. And it's not always, it's not as easy as it, uh, as I just made it seem the transferable skill. Um, you still have to have someone who's willing to take that chance on you. And uh, I definitely champion people uh, who are, who are advocates of transferable skill. Um, so everything I did at NBC was, storytelling, selling, uh, you know, we were selling TV shows. I was selling, literally selling photos. I was, you know, doing a profit and loss business. I was managing people. Uh, all, all these things, you know, moved into then running a photography business. Then I was a client coordinator. I was a producer, which is the same thing as a project manager. You know, you're setting up processes for how to do things. You're collecting payments. You're, you know, fulfilling you know client needs. You're dealing with tech. You're working with people. All these things keep carrying over and carrying over. Um, so then, when I I left California and we actually we moved to Michigan and I didn't have a job, you know, in the Midwest, it, it was hard to convince people of this transferable skill. But then I finally uh, found a startup. Uh, who was looking for a sales coordinator? I said, okay. And why can you sell, you know, real estate um, property management software to property managers? I said, because I can sell things. It doesn't matter what I'm selling. I can, I can do processes. I can tell a story. I can teach people things. I can do. I can work with people. I can learn things. And they took a chance on me. And then eventually, you know, I was one of the first two salespeople we started on the same day. And, you know, then I migrated us into new markets. And, you know, then I took over the creative department and was running that as well. And, you know, people just see like the skills there and they take advantage, they want to take advantage of it. So, you know, as long as it's not only that you can talk about how you can do it, but then you have to go and prove that all those skills do relate. So just because something is called, again, like a producer, just because it's called a producer doesn't mean you can only have a producer job. A producer's job is the same thing as a project manager job. Um, maybe project managers and you know uh, engineering have to have a certification, but really you're doing the same thing. You could take the class, you can pass it. It's, it's not really rocket science. It's about being organized, about following a process, keeping people on pace, hitting milestones, and things like that. And as long as you can talk the language of whoever or whatever job you're looking for based on what you did previously, people will buy in. Yep, for sure. So just, just for those following along, guy from Jersey goes to Boston, LA, and then Michigan. Why, why did you look to leave LA and, and move to were you in Ann Arbor from the get-go? No. So we actually lived in my in-law's house for three months. So uh, when we were looking to leave Los Angeles, I was pretty burnt out on the entertainment industry. I was working as a set photographer, sometimes 16, 18-hour days. Uh, sometimes, you know, we called it Friday. You start your day on a 
Friday, but you don't get home till Saturday at like six or seven in the morning. And it was a lot of hours being put in, you know, not seeing my wife that much. And to be honest, I worked on a lot of shitty TV shows. And I was like, why do I put in all this time for a TV show that is terrible and that is going to get canceled in the first season and things like this? And my wife was working in fashion and she was kind of burnt out on fashion. So we just started applying the jobs all around the country that sounded interesting to us. And uh, she got a job in Ann Arbor. And two weeks later, we moved out here and we lived at my in-laws house for three months until we found a place to live uh, just outside of Ann Arbor. And then we've been here ever since. So uh, closing in on five years. And you, it's worth noting that y'all are Michigan State fans living just outside Ann Arbor, which go green, which gives me uh, some kicks. You also had one of those gross L.A. commutes, right? When you were in MEC? Each, each way? How long was it? Uh, on a good day, my commute was probably an hour and a half. Um, if I didn't get you know stuck behind a crazy accident or anything, but if I was coming home at 3 in the morning, then it was 45 minutes. Uh, so it all depended. But I lived at the beach, and I didn't want to live anywhere else but the beach. Right. And so you, uh, Kelsey, your wife, had roots in, in Michigan. Yeah, and we didn't take the job because they were here. It just we took the job because at the time it was her dream job, and then it just seemed nice also that her family was here, and we moved, and that was that. So, the Ann Arbor job market's probably quite different from the LA market, and as we sort of sit here talking tonight, seven months into COVID it's been really cool to, to me to see enterprise businesses figure out how to uh, work remotely at scale. And it's not perfect, but certainly it, it can be done. And I mean, someone like myself, I probably won't be in New York until the middle of next year. I mean, is that something that you find in cool as well or don't really care i mean it really opens up a lot of doors to people um to sort of do what you did which is sort of look around but i also think you know for those people who think they have to be in new york or san francisco or la or seattle you know like and where your quality of life depending on where you live and your definition of a good quality of life like might not be so great. I, I love it. I'm really interested to see how companies are going to react when, you know, whenever this, this tide sort of goes out. Uh, but what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So besides the forced nature of having to stay in your house and uh, not wanting to go outside, you know, especially at the beginning, I think now we're a little bit more comfortable. We know what to do. It's, you know, wear a mask, wash your hands. It's pretty simple going out. But, um, Remote work is changed forever because of COVID. And, you know, there were remote companies were kind of niche before this. And there was a lot of old school thinking that you can't work as well and work as productive if you're working from home because you're just not going to work. And, you know, ideas like this, or you have to go sit with your customer and, you know, I've been that customer and I don't always want the person there 
um, because it's annoying for me to have to entertain them and deal with this meeting. And I, I got other things to do. And I think now people are realizing that you can get things done from home and you can be just, if not more productive. I think companies are actually finding out that they're probably getting more hours out of their employees now than they were before because you know you don't have that commute time. You, you're always home and, and uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to differentiate you know what is work time what is me time and home time um so i think a lot of companies even the company uh you know i work for which is a 120 year old german automotive supplier not exactly known for being you know love remote work yeah exactly um and we're not the most progressive company but even now we're working out, you know, uh, remote new remote policies. We had uh, in the U.S. at least we had a once a week you could work from home after you've been there for six months, but you had you had to pick a day. So if Tuesday was your day, then you always work from home on Tuesday. And I think that that's definitely going to be gone. The remote work policy will be a more lenient than that. And I think people are enjoying working with home. It's nice to see. You know, your friends, your significant other, you know, dogs are living their best life now. Um, mm-hmm. You can get errands done. You know, you can, you know, you don't have, to, it's amazing to me how much more time we have on the weekend now, because when you're home, it's like, oh yeah, I can throw that in the wash and then j- jump on this meeting. It's not a big deal. And these are, it all adds up and your quality of life gets to be so much better and workers are going to demand this in the future. So I see the companies like WeWork and uh, the other commercial real estate, they're actually going to struggle a lot more because companies are going to say, well, I don't need to have as big a building. We can have this kind of hotel policy where, you know, you don't have your own desk. You just come in and, you know, you reserve a spot when you need to be in the office, but we don't have to have as much space because people aren't going to be here uh, the time. Even in our industry, like um, big companies like Ford have told their employees, when you do come back to the office, it will not be the office that you left. Um, and we are probably going to get rid of some office space because a lot of you want to work from home and we want to make that okay for you. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think you can slam thousands and thousands of people on top of each other in cubes anymore. Uh, given, you know, this, this pandemic, I think people are going to, you know, not, not be super comfortable with that. And I, I I read an interesting article, uh, Harvard Business Review, I think a few weeks ago, and they talked about integrators and separators. And so some people, I think you're this way, I'm this way, where you, you, you know, and I've sat down with enough people at live career corner events to hear work-life balance is a is a complete farce. It just, it's not existing. And, and I, you know, with two young kids, like I'm more than happy to bring my daughter to school at seven 30, which is kind of gross, but then just start working when I get home and then go pick her up, you know, at two 20 when, when school gets out or whatever, it's like that, that, that works for me. I think people who, are separators per the article, you know, where they sort of like to walk out the door and then not think of work until the next day. I think that it's, it's been a challenge for them, but I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely been 
uh, I think one of the few good things to come out of this, and I'm really interested to see you know, how, how companies are going to react. Cause yeah, these, these huge buildings in these very expensive cities. Um, and that's one of the reasons we moved out of New York too. I mean, you know, this like, I didn't want to take a train in and out of grand central for the next 25, 30 years of my life. I'd rather just fly up a couple months to New York, for example. Um, so it's going to, it's going to be interesting. Talk to us about where you're at now and, and this, this German company that's been around for a while. Yeah. So I am the head of sales excellence and marketing at Hella. Um, or I guess technically only the head of sales excellence and marketing for North and South America. Um, Hella is a German auto supplier. Uh, we supply to the automotive industry. So your GM, Ford, Toyota, Daimler, you know, basically every car maker we, we have some relationship with. And we supply headlamps, tail lamps, any kind of lamps you want, we do it. Um, we also have lots of electronics, so sensors, um, things that are pushing for autonomous driving like radar, uh, you know, accelerator pedals, uh, lots of things in uh, the electromobility uh, space for battery management, uh, cooling of those battery systems, monitoring those battery systems and uh, along those lines. Not bad for a guy that went to Emerson for photography and no. <laughs> and you've um, you've been on a bit of the podcast circuit. Uh, I listened to one, I think it was about a podcast about uh, sales enablement. Um, what was the name of it again? I'd like to give it a shout out and I can link it, your interview there. The sales enablement podcast with Andy Paul. Andy Paul, right? And you were talking about sort of, you know, how the auto companies have been hit and sort of, um, you were almost talking about like sort of like the the life cycle of, of how things are purchased and built and stuff. And I read an article last weekend in the journal about like car, I forget the first part of the headline, but like car, like if you were to buy a car right now, they're very expensive which wasn't necessarily intuitive to me given, um, you know, the, the state of the world for the last seven months. And, and I want to, maybe there's not a connection between those two things, but based on what I recall from that interview, I think there, there might be. So could you sort of like think about or explain like sort of what your build on what your company does and how it interacts with its customers. And if there's a link to sort of the marketplace right now for a Ford truck, being so expensive. I'd love to hear that. And if I'm off base, just ignore it. I'm pretty good at ignoring you. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the, the, the car industry is crazy. Um, it is amazing to me. Um, so we are what's called a tier one supplier in the most of the time, which means that we supply directly to the OEM, which is your Ford, your GM. And so, uh, but there's a whole supply chain beneath us too, who you know, we use to build our parts to be able to then create our parts to sell to uh, you know auto companies. And when COVID hit and they shut down all their plants, well, that's it, guys. We have no industry to sell anything to. Uh, if they don't, if their plants aren't open, they're not accepting deliveries. We're not getting paid because payment terms are usually based on. Uh, the accepted delivery, and then it's something like 45 days 
after delivery is when you get paid. Um, so that hurts. You're not bringing in cash. Uh, luckily, I work for a company that is uh, very cognizant of you know the market itself, and we were prepared. Um, we didn't know that a you know pandemic was happening, but the market had been shifting down a little bit from you know absolute unbelievable highs of production in 2017. And things had started marching down slowly, not like jumping off the cliff or anything. Uh, so we were doing measures uh, to protect cash flow already. Because the interesting thing is, you know, if you're a sales guy in the normal world, you close a deal, everybody rings the bell, everything's so cool, you brought in lots of money. Well, in the auto industry or manufacturing, you closed a deal today. There's two years of development time. Then you start selling that part. Then the money starts coming in when they accept the part. So yes, there's some samples and they pay for samples and some things like that. But really, the money's not coming in for two years. And then you know that deal might last the six-year life cycle of a car or something. And by then, you've already worked on the deal for the successor car and, and things like that. So I think um, that's kind of the craziness of, of the industry and being in sales and marketing is that you're working on things that you know are way out in the future. Um, now, the reason that cars are so expensive uh, might have to do with technology. Or, you know, There's a lot more in a car than, the, than there used to be. A lot more safety features, a lot more environmental features, um, just a lot more... Um, you know, convenience features even, and, you know, it, it does add up, but the market is there. People are buying them. And it, honestly, if people were holding on to cars longer and not buying new cars, then uh, auto manufacturers would know right away and they would change their uh, purchasing policies and they would design, you know, differently. But the market is saying, we want this new cool stuff. We want to be safer. We want to be more environmentally friendly. Uh, and we want the convenience. Uh, we want the styling. Um, so people pay for it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because when I moved out of New York and needed a car for a family, I mean, I hadn't thought about buying a car in a long time. It was, the sticker shock was unreal. Is 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 does like the how popular leasing and this might be out of your wheelhouse so we can just move on but does the fact that so many people lease and like you say sort of like have that three-year turnover is that inflated or is it strictly just what you said no i think uh, i think actually leasing kept a, a lot of people in business during you know especially during the shutdowns because hey your lease is up you you have to get a new car so i think that that kept uh, the dealers kind of just floating basically during uh, all the shutdowns uh, because people had, literally their contract was up. They either had to buy their car or get something new. Um, but but uh, in the U.S. at least, uh, truck and SUV sales were still uh, pretty strong. Actually, by the times the plants had reopened, uh, dealerships were almost out of stock on F-150s and Silverados and things like that, which is unbelievable to think of. But people were still out there um, wanting their new cars and trucks. Speaking of F-150s, my son Winston is obsessed with the Ford Raptor. Uh, 
just absolutely loves it. So it's, the new one's pretty sick. Yeah, it's also sixty grand, uh, but you get like 200, 200 months, no interest or something like that. Uh, that's head of sales excellence and marketing. Sounds really cool. Can you sort of drill into what that looks like day to day? And then I think I'd love to sort of move in a direction because you you are sort of the head of North America to some degree for this German company, uh, which, by the way, is uh, good to hear that the companies in Germany are as fiscally conservative as the country itself compared to its European counterparts. But I'd love to start to d- dabble into if, if it's a natural transition into uh, sort of your leadership style and how you manage teams and things like that. But, but sort of like, let's start with what your remit is in this role and maybe unpack sales excellence a little bit for us. Sure. So I think, um, I think even there's a lot of people at the company who wonder what the hell I do. And uh, that's fair. I've had a, a long career, I'd say of really long titles that no one exactly knows, but maybe that's my sweet spot. Um, Maybe I just fill into the jack of all trades kind of uh, positions. But so sales excellence is, um, for the most part, sales operations at other companies. So what we do is we are set up the the tools, the processes, and the support of our sales teams. Um, you know, obviously there's a sales team in the U.S. and uh, also in Mexico for our region, and we support them. But we also do things that support uh, a global team of salespeople all around the world. Um, and there's, you know, uh, my team is also set up ar- around the world as well, the sales excellence department. So uh, we are supporting everybody. So by processes uh, that we really have, uh, you know, we work for a German company, and so we really have nice tight. Um, processes on what to do at what point, not, you know, to tell you, 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 not like a sales script and things like that, but, you know, documentation that you need, uh, you know, alignments that need to happen uh, and so on and so on to make sure that the data input is is, as high and mature as it can be uh, when you put it in. Because again, you're not actually going to get those vehicles being made for two more years. So, we really have to have high data maturity to really pan pan that uh, cash flow so far out. And so that becomes really important. We also do the tools. So we are responsible for our CRM. We use Salesforce, but we also have uh, other tools that were built in-house. We're also the the change managers of the company. So we are pushing the digitalization and transformation projects we're bringing old tools into the new age, into the cloud, uh, combining them into Salesforce or figuring out uh, better ways to do things than we did in the past, making sure that things are digital. Maybe it's even as simple as using a Microsoft SharePoint or something like that. And then we also have the support. So we have a team uh, that supports our salespeople, helping with some of the data entry, um, analytics, um, and kind of things like that and in the background and really, you know, supporting the team for what they need so they can focus on what's most important, which is their customers. And we deal with the internal stuff and making sure the data is correct and invoices can go out on time because we put it into SAP correctly for them 
that everybody knows what the right price is, that we're planning cash flow for reimbursements on tooling and other such things. And then the marketing side of it is, you know, I th- most people know marketing. I think it's pretty simple to explain, but it's also it's interesting because it's a regional for regional. So I make sure that we're regionally marketing uh, correctly to our main customers here, but we also work as a global team and we set up global initiatives to redo presentations, to work on branding initiatives, um, and really spread the wealth because we know that people have different strengths at different parts of the world and we kind of leverage that as best we can. And uh, this is something I think the marketing team is really jumping on now, uh, which is something that has been in place on the sales excellence side for a few years. And uh, my boss always says, we are in, we used to be an international company and now we're a global company. And what he meant by that was we have people in different countries and that's cool, but that's international. Now we're global because we actually work as a global team. And that's uh, really where you see all the benefits in the long run. So I thank you for that. And and um, I know you've done a lot of great stuff there. I mean, why did you start to... Do you genuinely like that kind of work? Because I... Excuse me. I think again on paper, photography, operational, sales enablement—they don't always go together. But I, I think it's cool that you're doing this, and that there's so many multifaceted components to sort of what you're good at or what you're interested in. And then, you know, you you can see the forest through the trees in terms of what is transferable or not. But I mean, is this, are you really happy with sort of what you're doing these days and get your rocks off on efficiency? Um, I don't know if I get my rocks off on efficiency, <laughs> but, um, you tone that down. That's fair. But I do, I do enjoy what I do and I can make a direct correlation back to what I was doing at NBC. At NBC, I had to be creative. Uh, I had to problem solve. I did actually have to work on processes for how we ingested photos, how we applied metadata, uh, things like that to make it more efficient, um, to, to make you know our lives better uh, in the long run. We had tech systems that we had to work with. I was one of the key people on our digital asset management system, also our press release distribution system and our SAP system. So working with processes and tools and support uh, directly goes back to to what I did there. Plus, I'm like I said at the beginning, I'm a nerd. I love technology. I love using technology to actually improve the lives of the people that I'm working with. So if I can implement something in a tool or my team can, and it makes the salespeople's lives easier and they can get their job done better, to me, that's the gratification. Um, because having them happier, having them more focused, means the company's going to be around, means we're going to keep selling things, um, means ultimately our customers can be happier because our salespeople are more focused. And um, to me, that that's where I get my rocks off, to be honest. It's not the process is, you know, I, I like coming up with it and being more efficient, um, but it's really the end result that makes me the happiest. By the way, I don't think I've ever set rocks off in my life. So this podcast is a first in more ways than one. In the well, now you have a title. 
Yeah, we're, <laughs> that's, that'll be the episode name. You know, I, to your point, though, around sort of technology and stuff, I, I mean, I said this to my leadership team last week or the week before. I don't think people work at, quote, tech companies anymore. I think every company is a tech company. And if you're not, then your days are probably numbered. And, and, I, and I think there's a bridge and sort of a transition, but I can't think of many industries, and there's definitely some that come to mind, where, you know, like when I joined a, a tech startup, it's like, that's still around. But I mean, if you're not using technology to deliver business results, I mean... I don't, I don't think you're in a good spot. Would you, would you agree with that? Or did you? Yeah, I think, no, I think technology is so pervasive. I mean, the job we moved to Michigan for was an ag tech startup. They were selling technology to farmers and it was difficult. Uh, A lot of these guys, you know, they, they knew how much rain was in their field because they had a rain gauge. That, you know, collected the water or they, you know, read the farmer's almanac and knew it was going to be okay that week. And so convincing them of that, but there's so much technology on a farm now, even an old family farm is still using tons of technology, whether or not they have the new John Deere, you know, tractor, they might still be using an old international or something, but um, there's still lots of technology that they're using even to sell their grain. So technology is pervasive everywhere. Um, the amount of companies that are using technology is, is, is up, but the amount of companies that are using technology correctly is probably the same. Um, there's so much tech out there now, and I don't think people weigh the benefits and the ROI of getting it they just go oh that yeah that sounds like something i need and they put it in they put another one and another one and before you know it if all these tools that don't talk to each other and you have to do all this work in all these different places and you've created inefficiencies uh, by the exact opposite of what you were trying to do was by creating efficiencies because all these things solved singular problems and so I, i think there's a lot of tool fatigue out there now um so yes we are a tech industry but companies that are really you know prospering are the ones that have figured out how to build a correct tech stack and do it correctly yeah so ben i've I've got maybe a handful of questions left and we'll start winding down i don't want to keep you too long and thank you so much for your time you know kind of covering off on a couple things the leadership I mean, how, how do you define leadership and then sort of what are the sort of traits that you try to exhibit in your role? And then are there any leaders out there right now that you really admire? And if so, why? So uh, the way I define leadership is that you are truly leading people, not that people are following you. And I know that's old and cliche, but to me, that means a lot. A leader should set the tone Uh, And people should feel like they actually want to work for that person, Uh, not just to make them happy or not just to not get yelled at, but they like want you want to succeed for that person because it's almost uh, like a father or mother who you you just want to make them happy. And uh, to me, that that's leadership. Uh, But the other part of then when you actually are that leader, 
it is knowing your team, uh, knowing their strengths, uh, pushing them beyond their limits, uh, and knowing that you're doing that and and letting them fail on purpose sometimes, so that way they have those learning experiences. But building them up, uh, you know, mentoring is a huge thing. But you know, with all those you know things that people do, I think the thing that people forget about the most is you set the tone. And on my team, people know the tone. Uh, they know we're we're going to work hard. I'm going to push them uh, beyond where they've ever been pushed before. They're going to learn new things. But we're going to have some fucking fun while we do it. And we're going to curse. We're going to laugh. We're going to make fun of things. And you know what? If we have a drink at the end of the day, whatever. Um, if we made a mistake, okay, fine. We admit we made a mistake. We move on. And Setting that tone, I think, is the most important uh, trait of a um, of a leader. Uh, I know you have, and I know I have. We've had bad leaders who have set terrible tones, uh, who are micromanagers, who stole all the credit, um, who didn't let you move out of your box because it would look bad for them. And you know, you learn from that, and then you look at great leaders you've had. Um, like I said earlier, like Melissa was one of the best bosses I ever had because she let me go for it. She let me try new things. She opened me up to these different experiences and she was there for me when I needed her. And she was also there for me when I didn't need her. Um, but I didn't realize that until I was older and could see uh, that kind of style. Yeah. I, I want to link two things you've said in this chat, one is you were, you were talking about your grandfather when you were 12 and the connection with people. And I, I wrote down EQ because I think that emotional intelligence in today's age to our, it, you know, it is almost a superpower. And then you also said that you're a straight shooter and everyone, you know, the nice thing about working for a straight shooter is you know where you stand with him or her and being that, but some people don't like that direct approach. So how do you, you know, how, how do you kind of balance those two things where you're understanding what makes people tick, understanding how they like to give or receive feedback and sort of reading people in the room. And then, you know, also like we, we've got to do this and, Here's why yeah. I need you to do X, Y, and Z. Here's why. So uh, the Midwest, uh, you know, it took them a while, and a lot of them are still getting used to uh, my speed and my bluntness, um, and it, it's hard. And you know, even some I work with people all across the world of different nationalities and backgrounds, and for them it is difficult too. Um, and the way I get through everything is humor. Uh, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. I can say bad words in over a dozen languages. I can probably only say hello in maybe three or four. Um, and that's where I make those connections. If I say, you know, you know, when you ask someone a bad word in their language, um, they don't just tell you like, oh, this is how you say whatever. They think of a story behind that and they tell you the story and you get to know them. And then whenever you say that word back to them, it's kind of like this inside joke you have and, it, and you get a laugh and you know, everybody wants to laugh. I have 
worked with, you know, top, top level CEOs who I've made laugh. And then from the second I made, because I challenged them back on something, but in kind of a sarcastic way, and uh, it broke down all the barriers. And if you can find your way, not, you know, humor doesn't work for everybody. Bad words doesn't work for everybody. Um, But if you find your way to break down, you know, that ice barrier or whatever, um, you can get through to people. And then, then once that barrier is gone, that's it. You can say what you need to say and they respect it. Um, they understand you as a human. They understand you professionally that as long as you get things done, you can still have fun. They're, they're fine with that. And that's how I kind of always combined uh, both those things together. Got it. Thank you. Do you, do you have any day-to-day habits or routines that support a, a successful career and, and performing at a high level in corporate America? I mean, I have habits. I don't know if they uh, support it or if they're uh, good habits, but they work for me. Um, and I think that's also what's important is you have to figure out what works for you. And that, that does take time. But for me, uh, my alarm is set for 5.15 a.m. every single day. Um, there is very few days that I wake up because of the alarm. I'm usually up before that alarm anyway. Um, and the first thing I do, which people say is not healthy, but for me, this is works. I check my phone. I work for a global company. I wake up to a phone full of emails and I do my work. I answer all the emails I can. I tag the other ones that I need to, you know, when I had to go to the office that I would do later. Now it's when I move to my kitchen and work from there. Uh, I answer once I turn on my laptop. But for me, it's like I clear all that off. So when I get to my desk, there's not like this huge weight of everything sitting there. Oh my God, how am I going to get through all this? No, I've already cleared out a lot of this. Um, you don't have to have a meeting about everything. Most things can be done via email. It's fine. Or, you know, a Teams chat or Slack or whatever you use. Um, so that that is one thing that I wake up early and I clear out the bullshit right away for my day. Uh, the second thing is uh, I live by my calendar. I have my notes in my calendar, reminders. Um, you know, I'm checking my calendar probably once every 15 minutes to see what's coming, to see what note I have, to see what I, my to-dos are to get things done and keeping me on track with that. The other thing uh, within my calendar is that I block off time for me to get my work done uh, because as a manager, yes, you have, to, you have to lead everybody. You have to leave time to be able to help your team because you know it's coming. So you have to be able to be flexible for that, but you also have to get your own work done. So I actually block off times uh, to get my work done. And sometimes it's, you know, sitting down and, you know, filling out some presentation or calculation or whatever it may be. But part of my job too is knowing what's coming. And so I block off time to read the news to make sure that I'm following the industry, that I'm following tech trends and things like that um, to, to be able to speak intelligently when I go into these meetings with uh, higher level executives to be able to talk about what's going on with the day and trends and things like this. And so that way they take me as a, a credible, you know, sparring partner in some of these high level meetings. Yeah, I love a lot of that. And I've learned to do some of that too. And I, I also like that you check email first because you're right. A lot of stuff you read would not recommend that. I don't know if you know this guy, Ramit Sethi, 
he he runs I will teach you to be rich so he's like he does a bunch of stuff but he he always jokes that he wakes up in the first hour of his day he just scrolls Instagram and then he like what I don't know watches something like something on YouTube and then like there's all the wrong things and like he's a very successful uh, individual so a couple more things that is actually timely that we're talking because I know you've you've got a pretty big initiative fundraiser uh, that you're raising money for. So I, I thought it would be great to, if, if you're comfortable, you know, kind of talking a bit about what you're up to and, and why it's important. And if people want to support, where, where can they go? And I'll, I'll link to that as well in the show notes. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, by the way, for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Um, so I am doing a fundraiser called Real Men Wear Pink. Uh, it's part of the American Cancer Society to raise uh, funds for uh, cancer research, and uh, in this case specifically breast cancer research. Um, and the reason that uh, I'm wearing pink for uh, September and October, I'm starting a little early, um, but I really believe in this cause so much is because cancer has really just hit my life uh, way too much. In fact, in our first year of marriage, uh, my wife had ovarian cancer, and it was her 30th birthday when we found out. And then uh, again, uh, in our second year of marriage, she had a recurrence of it. And breast cancer is one of the places that it, it could recur, supposedly. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But this is what I've heard. Uh, this is what her oncologist tells us. And he's a very respected man, so we believe him. But she goes through a battery of tests every six months. Uh, and uh, as of last week, she was four years uh, cleared. So this is uh, super cool. Um, but I also have other family, friends, co-workers, just too many fucking people with cancer. So really, I'm raising money to say, fuck you, cancer. And that's really how I feel about it. Um, and so I'm wearing a lot of pink, which is not a color that I had before. Um, I actually had to go to the Salvation Army to go buy some pink shirts because I didn't have any. Um, and people noticed right away when I'm on video chats at work, um, because usually I'm a man of gray, green, or blue. So that was kind of shocking to them, but it's, it's doing the point. And two weeks in, we've already raised almost $5,000. So uh, I'm really proud of that because the American Cancer Society actually gives 77% of the money that they raise directly to the research, and the rest goes to administrative cost of the people who are helping run the American Cancer Society. Uh, so to me, that that is also very important. Um, so the American Cancer Society uh, has the Real Men Wear Pink uh, you know, website. Uh, mine is just main.acsevents.org slash go to slash Ben Cohen. Uh, or you can find me on LinkedIn or uh, and you can link to my um my campaigns through there because I'm also posting about it pretty much every week on there as well. Yeah. It's a great cause, man. Thank, thank you for doing it and talking about it here. I, I think it's one of those things that, uh, cancers, you know, affected probably everyone in one way or another. Um, so thanks for doing that. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes. Final, final question. You know, you, you've talked a lot, about your career tonight. I think there's some really good nuggets. Thank you. But if, if there was one thing that you wanted the listener to walk away with, whether they're 25 or 55, 
and, and apply to their career, what would you say? I would say you don't get if you don't ask. And I think it's a really simple phrase, uh, but it's so true. And people sometimes are just afraid to go ask for something. And it's like, okay, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no, or they're going to, you know, not even reply to your meeting invite or something like that. And it works across so many things. If you want to mentor, reach out to somebody and ask them. If you, you know, want to work on a project, but you're not, you know, technically in that team or, you know, whatever, that discipline, go ask. Um, you know, you want to run a fundraiser and you want to get people to donate. Well, if you don't ask them, you're never going to get anything. And it's always the same. And it's a very simplistic thing that I teach my team um, when we need to go do research on things or whatever we're doing. And it's really kind of a almost daily mantra for myself as well to really keep myself always pushing forward. I like that. You don't get it if you don't ask. And a lot of people have, they, you know, you read a lot about or goal setting exercises. Well, there's, there's also fear setting exercises. So your point, if, if something is scary that you want to ask for, but you're uncomfortable, just write down all the things that scare you about it or the potential terrible outcomes. And oftentimes it's not that bad or nothing's going to happen, you know, and, and you've, you've got nothing to lose. So thank you for that. Ben, thank you for your time. Um, I really appreciate this and I couldn't think of a better person to start with and please give Kelsey my best. I definitely want to bring her on to, cause I know her startup is blowing up right now and she's frankly a lot more interesting than you are. So, uh, but please give her my best and thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. It's always a lot of fun. You know, I love nerding out about uh, all this stuff and, I would definitely agree with you that Kelsey would probably be a much better guest than I am. <laughs> definitely. All right, man. Have a great night. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you.